tuning in to listen to our next episode on our podcast we buzz produced by animal concepts my name is sabrina brando and we help you care for animals and for yourself and support you in other goals such as conservation education and research today i am delighted to welcome my friend and guest suzanne gendron who is the director of sage advice consulting and the former executive director of zoological operations and conservation at Ocean Park, Hong Kong. Welcome, Suzanne. Hi, Sabrina. Nice to talk to you today. Yes, nice to connect. And for those listening, you know that we'd love to start with a short story of a memorable connection to an animal or nature. So I'm really looking forward to hearing yours, Suzanne. Thank you for asking about my connections with nature, Sabrina, because I think that I've had a connection with nature since a very young age. Uh, we had our first pet dog when I was less than five years old. And there are stories, I cannot attest to this from firsthand experience where I would suck my thumb, pull my dog's tail and have my head on his haunches and he would tolerate it with no problem. So I, I felt very comfortable with um our dog our pet dog when I was under five and when we when I was five years old my family moved to uh, the country side where the house was overlooking a lake and there was quite a bit of open space and wooded space around and so as a child I had the freedom to explore my neighborhood um, where I saw bugs crawling out of their skin, cicadas crawling out of their skin on the Chinese elm tree. I saw turtles climbing up out of their lake to lay their eggs in my backyard. And of course, there was always the, the fear of the bear in the neighborhood or a local city dump across the freeway from me or highway from me that uh, I always was in fear of, but uh, I never did experience seeing them. You know, there were fish in the lake that we used to um, watch and fish for and being able to explore the outdoors and just contemplate what life one has between five and 10 years old, you know, in the lilac bushes has carried with me my whole life. And a couple of years ago, I moved to a part of Hong Kong that is surrounded by Country Park and a uh, little bay. And I realized I can have that, I have that sense of peace inside whenever I come here that reminds me of that peace I had as a child. And it really centers and brings so much happiness to me. I can't imagine not living in close contact with nature and, and our wonderful world. And I think that's what has inspired me, that knowledge of what I had as a child and my current knowledge of what we don't have that I had as a child 
um, has inspired me to work in the field with animals and especially with conservation, leveraging our work with animals for conservation uh, in my career at Ocean Park, uh, especially where I, I also uh, was a foundation director for their conservation foundation. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that, Suzanne. And I think what's really you know, beautiful is that you talk about all these various, you know, animals, whether they were animals in your home or animals around you, or even some that you were, you know, a little bit nervous about and being really, you know, infused by all these wonderful sights and smells and sounds and the interconnectedness of everything. And, you know, also being hidden and also being out in the open, all these different stories. And, that nature is really everywhere. You know, a lot of people will think of Hong Kong as a huge city, which of course it is. Uh, but having visited you there and having worked together with you there also at Ocean Park Hong Kong and, you know, you taking me different places, it's also a place where there's lots of parks and you can take the boat and be on an island. And there's like, you know, in what ways are is nature, you know, whether it's a park or big wilder spaces you know around us and what way can we recreate that uh, so that's really wonderful you know sharing these stories and perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about you know what you studied and why you chose to study that particular topic well I was 15 years old when my parents decided to move to San Diego California and my very first high school friend uh, took me to the beach to go snorkeling and I absolutely fell in love with the ocean. And at that point in 10th grade, I decided I wanted to be a marine biologist and investigated what university to go to, what to study, what to do. So I, I went up to the University of California, Santa Barbara and studied biology, zoology with an emphasis on ecology and fishes and had an opportunity just out of the blue to work at SeaWorld in San Diego as an aquarist. And so that started my career. I thought I would be an aquarist for eh, one, two, maybe three years. I might go on to graduate school. I might go on to teaching, but I ended up staying in, in the career of animal care, informal education and conservation as zoological uh, facilities have evolved into for over 40 years. So I, uh, it happened by accident, but I stayed, I chose to stay in it uh, because of the opportunities to work for conservation and to ensure that animals under our care, their lives had the best lives they could. So after working in, at SeaWorld uh, and appreciating the opportunities not only to work with I was in the aquarium department so I worked with mostly fishes but also reptiles and lots of invertebrates I uh, had an opportunity to consult for five weeks for an aquarium under construction in Jakarta Indonesia and heading down there in early 1994 I thought it would be just a, a five-week consulting job and I'd return to the United States. But instead, I fell in love with the, the people and, again, that opportunity to contribute to 
conservation and informal education about animals and help inspire people to to conserve our our wildlife when i was at this aquarium in jakarta and i ended up staying for five years uh, as the curator over seeing the animal care animal welfare and informal education for the facility um, and whilst in indonesia there were so many amazing adventures and one in particular i'm fond to recall is when i traveled with my boss to the kai islands and the not quite as far as irian jaya which is now indonesia papua but past the the malukus so quite a bit to the eastern edge of the indonesian archipelago to investigate if there were opportunities to collect napoleon wrasse they had just been put on the CITES list. They were, they are not, and were not protected within the country, but it was such a, an important conservation story because reefs were being destroyed to get Napoleon wrasse as a food fish uh, for the uh, restaurants in Hong Kong. So we wanted to be able to tell their story. And so we were over there and, and we went by this statue of an eagle with its wings outstretched and there was a fish in its claws and it was probably 20, 30 feet tall, um, maybe not quite 10 meters tall or and across. It was just very big and it was right at the isthmus of this island. And my boss turned around to ask me if I, and they were chuckling and they asked me if I knew what was wrong and what they were laughing about. And I, Kind of look confused. It's just so funny that that eagle will never be able to take off because that fish won't stop struggling and, and give in. And that fish will never be able to, to go anywhere because that eagle is determined to get it. And it was, there were more layers in the story than I saw it as a moment in time. I didn't see it as a story. I didn't see it as as layers of meaning. And I realized that at that time that my upbringing, my, my perception of the world was not what everybody, how everybody else perceived the world. And it was really a marvelous lesson to learn working in Asia because it always made me pause when I didn't understand what somebody was telling me, a story they were telling me or something they wanted me to know. Uh, because I, I, if I didn't understand it, I realized, well, maybe their perspective is different than mine. And I, and I learned to look at uh, situations, problems from many different perspectives that were not, you know, centric in what I had grown up learning how to look at them. So I really appreciated that, uh, that lesson in Indonesia. And it held me in good stead here in Hong Kong also, since it's uh, it's part of the exciting part of living overseas is how different we are. Despite all our similarities, I, I just really enjoy the differences that we we have and how we look at the world and, and being able to learn those other perspectives. Yes, absolutely. I think that is so key, right? When we talk about collaboration and 
really connecting. It's about listening and understanding and sharing each other's stories and in the look at different perspectives and perceptions and all these different sorts of layers of what sort of meaning is attributed. And uh, yeah, absolutely, I, I agree with you. It's one of the most beautiful things of traveling and working in different places is, is to learn and, and share and, and have those opportunities for those sorts of lessons, if you like, yeah. And you talked a few times already, you've mentioned informal education. Can you talk to us a little bit about what do you mean by that? When we talk about formal education, we're, we're referring to preschool, kindergarten, elementary or primary school, secondary school, high school, university, where there are teachers, trained instructors that have a, a learning theory and create a curriculum that they are, that is common for a school district, for a school, et cetera, and that we all experience, because I think most places in the world now have a, a formal education a requirement, you know. When I refer to informal education, uh, it's more the educational opportunities that we have in the outside of schools, outside of universities, where they may be associated, uh, you know, you might take a class, an informal class at a university, but it's not a university level class, or you might take uh, where we have informal learning within places like Ocean Park and other zoological facilities is we have a, a mission to connect people with nature, to inspire uh, stewardship for nature through those connections. And in taking a, a formal education class in my master's for education, it was quite interesting to read studies and where they are demonstrating that a connection with nature, an emotional connection with nature through spending time in nature is more important than environmental education and the lesson for inculcating that sense of stewardship in, in children. And so being able to provide opportunities with connecting children and young adults with animals, which is a, a form of nature, to help them emotionally connect is really an important part of conservation. You need knowledge. So we also impart knowledge. I mean, you have to kind of know why and what needs to be done, but if you don't care for them, if you don't have that affect, that emotional connection, you tend not to act upon your knowledge. And so we consider all of these um, aspects, the informal learning that happens at zoos and aquariums. Some of it is self-directed when you go through the zoo and you read the, the graphics and look at the animals. Some of it is through programs, specially designed programs that are age appropriate for the, the uh, community to, or schools to come in and um, leveraging the fact that you have animals and, and expertise that you can help 
inculcate that um, connection and sense of stewardship. Yes, no, absolutely. I think, uh, and today, of course, zoos and aquariums, a lot of the com contemporary zoos and aquariums, uh, they have, you know, whole education departments with educators with different, you know, people with different experiences and backgrounds that engage with children of all ages and peoples of all ages, and uh, indeed are, you know, part of whether it's creating the panels you were talking about, or, you know, all kinds of different activities within the facility, or sometimes also going out to the schools or to the community. And uh, right. together also with this podcast, there will be a link to the, um, the World Zoo and Aquarium Conservation Education Strategy, Social Change for Conservation. So if you are working in the space or you're interested in the space, you can also follow up with this uh, wonderful document. Uh, I think just last year it was um, published. So excellent, excellent document. I agree. The education one for, no, from Waza. Yes. And so perhaps, you know, you have... Uh, worked in, you know, you, you mentioned animal care and welfare in conservation. So perhaps you can talk to us a little bit. And then, of course, you know, you, you moved um, to Hong Kong and became the, the executive director of zoological operations. You worked with the foundation. So perhaps you can talk uh, a little bit about your work at Ocean Park Hong Kong in the foundation. Oh, I'd love to, because it it is quite a, an exciting um, small conservation foundation that originally started as a, with its mandate to help conserve marine mammals. And because the my predecessor and the, uh, the man who helped establish it for Ocean Park had realized there was very little research about marine mammals in Asia, especially Southeast Asia. So in order to uh, try to um, make that gap of information smaller, he, he helped had Ocean, he and Ocean Park established this conservation. And at first it was just a funding organization where people would uh, submit applications for research, and so many would be funded per year. The Conservation Foundation has an had uh, grew from being just a funding agency to being able to also incorporate educational aspects. First, with drawing competitions with kids that children that came to Ocean Park and connected with the animals and were taught about some of the conservation issues around marine mammals in Hong Kong to events such as a run for survival that uh, heightened everybody's awareness about fisheries and plastic pollution. And the foundation then also worked closely with the Hong Kong government on events to raise awareness on conservation issues especially marine conservation issues uh, in Hong Kong and worked with the Chinese government on projects with giant panda conservation uh, 
and aquatic conservation, especially focused on the Chinese sturgeon in, in China. Whilst the foundation originally was formed to look at and protect and, and support conservation work for marine mammals, when Ocean Park uh, was allowed to take care of and entrusted with the two giant pandas that were gifted to Hong Kong, in 1997, and upon the handover, the park established a second foundation to support giant panda conservation. And therefore, I had my first six months, I had one conservation foundation. And six months after I arrived, the second conservation foundation was established. And so I not only was running the animal care and education aspects for Ocean Park, but we also had two conservation foundations with four trustee meetings a year that each <laughs> that I was running. And after five years of that, it seemed that it might behoove us to combine our conservation foundations into one that has the vision to save uh, and the biodiversity for Asia and a vision, a mission to do that through conservation projects and education. Can you talk to us a little bit about the different species that were part of all these different meetings and indeed, you know, combining it uh, sounds like a great idea. It sounded very busy. Uh, of course, it stays busy, but uh, like coordinated in that sense. Could you talk to us a little bit about the various species, like of marine mammals or fishes? Thank you. So the foundation was initiated to look at the marine mammals, more specifically the whales and dolphins, cetaceans, uh, in our region. And one of the driving forces for that was that the Hong Kong government was building a new airport on a small island. So there was quite a bit of landfill to connect it with the bigger island of Lantau. And that area had been a prime Chinese white dolphin, Susa chinensis, prime habitat for them for feeding and play so, and raising their young even. So there was quite a bit of concern of how would building this airport and the disturbances for the five years that that was going to happen, uh, how would that affect the, the dolphin population? And so that was one of the very first studies that the Conservation Foundation funded. And my predecessor, Steve Leatherwood, Dr. Steve Leatherwood, headed up that research. They did find that the, the animals, uh, the dolphins moved offshore into the Pearl River estuary, which oh, Lantau Island just pokes its nose into. Um, and at that time, when I first moved here, the airport was up and running. The Chinese white dolphin in the summer would number around a hundred. Uh, 250 individuals in our waters. And in the winter, they would only be about 150. Now it's not a static, same 150, same 250. They're a very mobile uh, 
population that would go into the Pearl River and be some would have preferences for being in the Hong Kong waters, but there was no barriers between Hong Kong waters and, and Chinese waters, so to speak. The uh, reason that there was a difference between summer and winter is we, in the tropics, we have heavy rains, typhoons that cause so much water to come down the Pearl River into it, the estuary that the fish also follow it. And the Chinese white dolphin is a coastal uh, estuarine species. And so it, uh, it followed the fish. And so in the winter, the, the population spreads out, but it moves further up the um, estuary into the estuary and comes back down closer to Hong Kong. So we see about a hundred. That was the 1998. In 2018, 2020, unfortunately, we're looking at numbers and then ranging from 50 to 60 animals, and there's not a great deal of difference between summer and, and winter. So we've seen quite a, a large decrease in the number of dolphins, Chinese white dolphins that spend any length of time in Hong Kong waters at one point you know, during the year. And we believe that partially is due to the construction of the airport and other landfill and other disturbances such as high-speed ferries from here to Macau. And there is plans on the books for even more landfill, which is quite a worry for us that hate to lose Chinese white dolphins in our waters because they are just a magnificent animal. So that was the very first species uh, that the foundation worked on uh, and studied. Wonderful, when, wonderful. When the pandas arrived, the park established the Conservation Foundation for the Hong Kong Society for the Conservation of Pandas uh, and supported work in, in China and worked very closely with the Sichuan Forestry Department, the State Forestry Department, and the Wulong Nature Reserve supporting research there since we now had the, the pandas on display at Ocean Park and, and felt it was a very important aspect. So Chinese, uh, for that foundation, it focused on giant pandas and to a smaller extent, the, the lesser panda, the red panda, that's found not just in the Sichuan, but all the way across to N Nepal. After five years, as I, I think I might have mentioned, the management of two conservation foundations with four trustee meetings each per year, plus uh, overseeing zoological operations and informal education for a zoological facility of the size of, of Ocean Park, we were getting uh, close to five to seven million visitors a year at that time, it was overwhelming. And so we combined the foundations together and looked at broadening our vision to save Asian biodiversity with our vision to uh, do this through supporting research studies, through education, 
uh, and through activities and participation in conservation for our community. When we did that, we certainly expanded the, the breadth of animals that we were supporting. And one of them was the Chinese uh, sturgeon out of the Yangtze. And we came to uh, focus on that animal and work with the Ministry of Agriculture out of China because we uh, displayed for uh, a, a few years Chinese sturgeons in one of our facilities. And therefore we wanted to link and make sure we had strong connections with the Conservation Foundation. The Chinese sturgeon numbers were falling quite quickly through their rivers being dammed, the pollution, overfishing, and more recently with the temperature rise, their concern that the spawning is not happening as often uh, as it did in the past. So China was quite concerned and it was a high priority because for them, the Chinese sturgeon is the aquatic equivalent of the Chinese panda. And it was very important that they could start to, to see some improvements. Chinese pandas has had a wonderful success story. They were from critically endangered to where now they are uh, vulnerable because their numbers have increased. There's quite a, a number of laws, regulations to, to protect them. There are many more forestry zones and, and reserves to protect them. And their numbers have increased from less than a thousand back in the late, uh, in 1998 when I joined the foundation to now they're, they're well, they're close to 2000. Um, in the wild and even more than uh, there were only a hundred under human care back in 1998. And now there are thousands under human care within China and around the world. So that's a, a fantastic uh, conservation success story. I wish that were the case with the sturgeons where there's uh, the foundation and China especially is still focused quite keenly on that problem because with global warming, they're seeing changes uh, in the temperatures all the way up into the headwaters even of the Yangtze River. So we'll continue to see how conservation foundations, zoological foundations can influence and educate communities to participate in behaviors to mitigate or slow global warming. But I think for global warming, that's one of the issues that we also need to strongly advocate with our governments and hold their feet to the fire that they uphold their commitments um, on the accords, on the conservation of uh, the uh, climate accords, so that we do see a, um, a stop at the rising temperature. Thanks, Suzanne, for sharing all these yeah, wonderful examples and also, you know, where still a lot of work is needed 
and yes, we, you know, I don't think there's anybody or not agreeing with, you know, governments having to do their part because there's only so much we can do as an individual and so much we can do as an organization and a foundation. And some of the solutions to these really big, complicated problems are not going to go away unless, you know, you have the support of, of the government or different governments working together indeed. And so talks about, you know, different sorts of education, informal education and different species. Can you talk to us about some educational activities like specifics so what species what did you do with people you know or what were people you know invited to participate in that would be great i think for our um, ocean park one of the most popular and i would also say effective uh, educational programs was when we had meet and greet with the animals and we had had our community safely meet and greet with our penguins, with our pandas uh, and marine mammals, and even um, with our small clawed Asian otters. Uh, and when they enter the program, they'll first have an educational portion where they're told a little bit about the animals, they're told what the situation is in the wild, what they can do, what can be done to, to help, you know, save and protect these species. And then they have an opportunity. They, of course, have all the rules and regulations um, shared with them, and they'll, they'll dress appropriately to protect the animals from any, any sort of diseases that they might bring in. And, um, and also to protect them from if it's cold in the in the penguin habitat, or they may have to dress more warmly. But they they will then have an opportunity to become immersed in the penguin exhibit or meet a giant uh, panda through a protected door in when they're in their den. Um, they can shake hands with a small clawed otter if they pledge to take five minute showers. So each of these meet and greets would also not just have the education about the animal and their conservation, but have a specific action that you could do that would also contribute toward their conservation. And again, um, small clawed otters, it was uh, fresh water, conservation of fresh water. So taking a, a short uh, five minute shower instead of long luxurious showers and wasting lots of water. With uh, marine mammals, it's plastic. We know there'd be the, the goal to not waste, not use plastic bags, not waste, throw away in the environment plastic and also activities would uh, revolve around beach cleanups and organizing the trash to understand what where it's coming from, what it is, and then and then trying to figure out ways that we could stop producing it in those areas so that there would be less that we don't just have to get it out of there, but we stop it going in altogether. So those are some of the the meet and greet educational activities that we would have. The 
Suzanne, before, I, yep. before you dive further into other types of activities, can you talk to us a little bit when you said effective, do you mean because that it was enjoyable for people or did, do you have some data and was it in what way did people's behavior change? And perhaps also um, for people listening who are interested about the care and the well-being of the animal, what sort of criteria was there for, you know, the animals having a good time as, the, as well as the people uh, meeting the animals? Oh, well, why don't I start with that last aspect first, because animal welfare was the number one priority, of course. And so all, all of the animals that participated in a, a meet and greet educational acti activity had an opportunity to be there or to move away into a safe zone of their own choosing that they did not, they were not forced, uh, constrained by walls and doors to, to interact with people, that it was their own free will. They would, uh, they were well-fed, so that was, they weren't motivated by food, though they were rewarded for good behavior uh, through food being one of those issues, uh, one of those uh, ways to reward them. So the animals uh, were, had that freedom of choice. People had to make sure that they were washed their hands, didn't have jewelry, uh, anything loose that an animal could uh, ingest. So to protect them from ingestion or potential uh, diseases. Um, people that had to be well and healthy to participate. So protecting the animals. Uh, to protect the people, of course, our animals were healthy. They had veterinary, 24-hour veterinary care and were well um, looked after. So healthy animals were able to participate. So health-wise, people and animals were, were looked after. Um, the other aspect of, of the educational for how do we understand if it's effective is often uh, for new exhibits we and new activities, we would um, conduct a, a before and after survey of the, the visitors or the participants to understand what their knowledge was, what their their affectation and what was their emotional connection? What was their intent to conserve? Because it is true that one of the next to impossible aspects to, to study is somebody leaving your facility and they're going out there and for the rest of their lives participating in conservation because of your, your uh, event and your, their connection with that you made. So we would look at, let's say, knowledge and the continuum of where people were before they entered, the group of people before they entered and after always moved along the continuum. So if, if one person knew nothing or let's say three people knew nothing and five people knew a little bit, you'd see all of those numbers shift up at least one or, or two um, areas for knowing nothing, knowing a little, knowing a little uh, more, and knowing a lot. So the, the amount of knowledge. And then this next one would be if they had an, uh, 
intent to conserve. So you would ask them what was their intent to conserve before and what was their intent to conserve afterwards. And I can't remember off the top of my head. I know there were three things that we'd always look at because it's uh, it's the emotional. It's I guess it's the emotional connection. And, and did you care about the animals before? And it, how much did you care about the animals afterwards? And, and looking at those differences. And we say that our programs were effective because we saw a shift towards the more positive on all three of those aspects for our programs and our, our uh, um, exhibits when we would do those type of surveys. Thanks for sharing, Suzanne. I think these are so important aspects, you know, looking at all the animals, you know, for those of you listening and not, you know, knowing necessarily what happens in zoos and aquariums or in what ways can you empower animals and give them choice and control. Thanks for sharing all the various ways. And I'm sure there's many more. You know, mm, that so we true. Can, yeah, that we can um, really, you know, look at how do we make experiences as positive for the animals involved in them and also uh, for the for the people. And also in what way do we do research or try and understand our visiting public of all ages and our community that what we hope, you know, they want to conserve and connect with uh, is also, you know, taking place and is happening. And this is of course something that, uh, that we do over a long uh, period of time. And so, but these are some of the things that you know, contemporary zoos and aquariums today have in place or want to have in place if they want to look at their educational programs or welfare programs and how effective are they for, for everybody. So thanks for sharing those details, Suzanne. And I know that you work with a lot of different facilities. You've worked, you know, all over the world at conferences. You've been extremely active on committees and, and all kinds of other work over the last 40 years. And you have consolidated, if you like, all that um, information, all that knowledge, all that experience in your, your consultancy company right now, right? You work uh, still in education and you, know, you and I talk uh, on a regular basis. So can you talk to us a little bit about Okay, what is Sage Advice Global? And if people want to engage with you, what are some of the the projects or services that they could uh, think of? Ah, well, I've started Sage Advice after I retired from Ocean Park after my 20 years there. And Sage Advice, Sage Advice Global has, it's just all the knowledge, as you said, that I've acquired over my 40 years in this, in this field, now 43 years in this field, uh, where I spent many years in management. So that consulting on management, uh, animal care and welfare, working with the WAZA uh, conservation strategy. So, and not, not so much the education strategy, but the sustainability strategy and the conservation strategy and implementing those uh, in and working and having those at my facilities I am able to offer insights and uh, help places develop their own sustainability um, strategies, their 
animal welfare, review animal welfare, much like you, and, uh, and also develop those strategies. And also informal education, uh, having spent you know, most of my time at Ocean Park involved with the informal education aspect, being able to, to advise on development, uh, well, first an educational strategy, and then on the development and of the graphics and programs and educational material that supports it. So I uh, have experience there from my work with Ocean Park. And of course, having run, run a conservation foundation for over 20 years, the any aspect of, of the conservation foundation, supporting conservation, the strategy, the uh, events, the informal education, and, um, and really most aspects of conservation, I, I would be able to um, help um, shed some light on if people are, are, don't know where to start, are unfamiliar with the, the field and, and want or just want to step up their game and, and do more. Excellent. We'll have a, a link to your LinkedIn profile. There's, yeah, there's so much. It's hard to put it all in this, in this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, having worked with you for many years, I can attest to, you know, it's being very, very enriching. You focus on so many different details. You bring in so many different perspectives. So if anybody is looking for help, you know, follow the LinkedIn profile for Suzanne's and, uh, and get in touch with her. And Suzanne, in, you know, in conclusion of this podcast, and like we like to do for every podcast, can you share with us a memorable story or something, maybe a change that you and your team have done, anything that, that you want to share that makes your heart sing in conclusion? Uh, I think I'm, I'm an avid scuba diver, as you know. We were talking about that earlier before the program. I, I absolutely love being in the water. I love the marine ocean, and, and which, of course, is what inspires me to want to protect it. But I think my very first encounter with a whale shark was in Baja, California, uh, just off the waters of Baja, California, and the Sea of Cortez are also called the Gulf of California. And I remember seeing a whale shark and being able to get in the water and see the animal up close. And I just thought I had died and gone to heaven. I was so excited. And that thrill of being able to swim near and try not to interfere with, but swim near whale sharks and mantas and the animals that I see on our, our reefs in Indonesia, Australia, Malaysia, and Hong Kong even, you know, just inspire me and keep me focused on wanting to do everything and anything I can to contribute to conservation um, and make sure that the next generation and the generation thereafter can, can see and appreciate the amazing animals and biodiversity that we have here on planet Earth and planet ocean. Yes, I love that last part, especially also planet ocean. And uh, yeah, we forget how much our planet is water sometimes, right? So yes, planet mm -hmm. ocean and um, 
with Google, of course, you can not only just zoom in onto the land, but you can also uh, zoom in mm. underwater. Sure. So thank you again so much, uh, Suzanne, for sharing with us your love for animals and for nature and for education, you know, informal or formal, connecting us together to this beautiful planet that we share. Thanks again, Suzanne. Oh, thank you very much, Sabrina, for having me. And I uh, look forward to uh, keeping in touch and helping you whenever I can. Thank you. All right. Take good care. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you for listening and subscribe to our newsletter. If you would like to receive updates on new episodes and or other resources, we publish lots of freely available downloads every month. And accessing simplified tools and practical resources has never been easier to our signature platforms, Practical Animal Welfare Science, which is all about animal well-being, One Care, which is all about human well-being at both the individual and organizational level, and the Earth Charter and the SDGs, which is all about planetary well-being, which is really all of us on this beautiful planet that we share. And we send a huge thank you to all our members. Animal Concepts is really honored and delighted to support a global community connected through three powerful platforms in one membership experience. Of course, it's important to us that anyone can have access to affordable, continued personal and professional development, regardless of financial situation. So you can find more about complimentary access through our Acts of Kindness programs on our website. And when people unite from a culture of care and respect, they, the animals and the planet can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to join our community today.